Blog Talk Radio. October 28th, 2012 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of news and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff. Yes, returning from my long hiatus. Sorry I had to be gone for a few weeks, but today I have for you to make up for it a special guest here in the studio, Yaron Brook. He's the executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute. I managed to convince him to join me in the midst of his tour to promote his recently released book, which he co-authored with Don Watkins, who I interviewed last show. The book is Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government. So thanks, Sharon, for joining me again here. My pleasure. Um, for more on the book, I want you to listen to my last podcast, which was just before my hiatus. That was the September 30th interview with Don Watkins. Because I want you to look that you know look there for the book because the topics that I want to talk about today aren't really on the topic of the book although I do want to hear how's it, how's it going it's going well it, in the first couple of weeks it made uh, some of the bestseller lists so it now has a and uh, the new cover now has national bestseller on it so that's kind of cool uh, but it, I encourage people to go and uh, and buy the book read it uh, and uh, I know there are lots of uh, my Facebook uh, likes people who like me on Facebook. I guess you call them likes, mm-hmm. uh, who haven't bought the book yet. So uh, go buy the book. Um, there are probably some listeners here who haven't bought the book yet. It's on Kindle. It's guilt, in audio. Guilt, it's, guilt. It's in, that's right. That's right. Objectivist guilt. That's right. You haven't bought the book. Well, you should, Do you really believe in these ideas? Are you really trying to promote right. them in the culture? Well, by, actually, if that's the case, you should buy several copies and give them to your friends and give them to your local tea party. And uh, get the word out. It, it, the book is a is a great tool in uh, in all of our battle, all of our fight to to make this country a freer country. Now Debbie in the chat room says that she's read it twice, and then someone asked her, "Did she highlight it?" She says, "No, it's an audio book. It's hard to highlight." <laughs> an audio. Well, maybe we should interview Debbie about the book. That's right. That's what we should do. Actually, Debbie, if you wanted to call in about any question that you had about the book later, you definitely could. Uh, people who want to call in and talk to your own, the number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Or you can participate in the chat room as we've got a uh, got some fans of yours. Look at this. Zach, your own. <laughs> Well, they should call in. It's always fun to talk to people and uh, see what's on their mind and uh, answer answer questions from uh, the, the listeners. Definitely. I mean, I've, I've always got enough to keep you busy here, and yeah. I, I do today. But if people call in or if they give us a question here in the chat room, that's great. So last time that you appeared on my show, which was August 12th, way back in August, this was right after Mitt Romney picked Paul Ryan as his running mate. And we discussed Paul Ryan, his view of Ayn Rand, and the effect that Romney's nomination of Paul Ryan might have on the spread of Rand's ideas in the culture. And now I'm glad to say this week we have a huge example of 
brand, her name, and a little bit about her ideas getting mentioned in you know popular culture. We have the President of the United States, who of course been going around everywhere being interviewed by all the non-serious media. He goes to the Rolling Stone magazine, and they asked him a question about Ayn Rand. They asked if he's read Ayn Rand and what he thinks the effect of uh, you know Paul Ryan as vice president would have because of the fact that he's influenced by her ideas, what effect that would have on the administration. Um, but So that means it's already happening. This is a great opportunity to educate people in the culture about Ayn Rand. Uh, you know, her name being mentioned is certainly going to generate curiosity on its own. And I was just going to say, Yaron, I was really impressed with how the Institute just took this ball and ran with it this week. I saw on Facebook many of the intellectuals at ARI commenting on this. And then, of course, you spoke about it, I believe, on PJ Media a little bit. Uh, there's a piece now in Forbes that I've got here that was just, I think, released in the last yeah, day. Yeah, it was released uh, today. The Forbes piece was released today. I encourage you to go. It's it's really good. Um, I think Don basically wrote that, uh, I think, on Friday. He just spent Friday writing that. Right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think uh, Obama made the comments. It was it on Thursday? And we had a quick meeting, and, and uh, I think that we've produced, I'm not sure how many blog posts, probably five, six, seven blog posts, and it immediately went up. Everywhere in Facebook and everywhere in Twitter, and it was cited. And I think the Huffington Post asked us for a comment, and we commented, and that's published now. Right. So, yeah, and I produced a quick video to explain our position on it. So, really, our position is out there. Anybody who is interested in in uh, what Obama said and what, what an objectivist response to it uh, has no excuse for us to go there. It doesn't, of course, prevent you know a bunch of so-called experts commenting on this on radio and the television everywhere. Uh, but but th- there's there's tons of content now out there. Yeah. And it's it's great. It's a great opportunity. Anytime somebody prominent mentions Ayn Rand's name, book book sales go up, uh, and it's an opportunity to, to comment, and, you know, uh, different people in the media were commenting on it. So, yeah, it's great. Increases visibility, all good, good stuff. Now, if only Biden would say something. Yeah, well, if Biden said something, it would be even, I mean, it would just be ridiculous. It wouldn't just be wrong. It would be ridiculous. It'd be actually probably pretty funny. I I like the focus of, you say that Don primarily wrote this piece, uh, the Forbes piece, but I liked the idea that it was who actually has the right idea about what is best about America. And he presents what Rand thought was great about America, right? It's the fact that the individual owns his own life he has the right to the pursuit of happiness which is what i think most americans if they still are in possession of their sense of life and uh you know they haven't had the public education system beat out of them the you know the ideas of our founding they still have this idea that we have the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and this is what rand aligns herself with and then on the other hand you've got and uh, don talks about it that what Obama thinks is great about the country is everything since, in effect, we have started to abandon our founding principles and instead embrace the entitlement state and all the things that you're fighting in your yeah. book. I mean, right? one of the things I notice is that, that people don't actually read all of his interviews. So Obama's very intellectual. So uh, most people read just his comments about Ayn Rand being uh, attractive to teenagers. 
But they didn't read on. But what's interesting is what he says after that. What's interesting, because then he says, uh, Ayn Rand represents this, you know, uh, uh, do it on your, you know, on your own type mentality. And uh, and uh, we in America, we're about building stuff together. And he very much positions this as his false view of it, what individualism means, which is, you know, desert island individualism, with his collectivism. And, and, and notice they always do that because they, they never, they always set up a straw man for individualism. Because if they actually articulated what individualism would mean, then the American people would say, oh, but that's that's what I believe in, right? So they have to create a false a straw man. They do the same thing in ethics uh, when they when they talk about self-interest. They have to set up a straw man for self-interest, lying, stealing, cheating. Because if they actually articulated Oh, what we mean by self-interest is long-term rational self-interest, pursuing what's good for you and creating a flourishing life with the goal of being happy. Americans would go, oh, wait a minute. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, so you have to – so the, 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 the collectivists, the altruists always have to set up individualism and the morality of self-interest as straw men, and that's exactly what Obama does. And he's very sophisticated about it. And he's very clever about it, and that's why it's important to read – even even that speech he did about um, uh, you didn't build it, people just latched onto the one sentence and the left justifiably said, well, wait a minute, you're not looking at the whole context. The context was much more interesting because the context actually shows how deeply rooted he is in a collectivistic view of the world. So uh, I encourage everybody when, when, you know, hopefully we won't have to tolerate him for very long. But um, but for as long as Obama's important, uh, reading his stuff and, and following him, it is important to see what he's really about. Yeah, and and we definitely see that here. Now, in the quotation, I actually have the the excerpt that Bosch uh, Faustin got for me off of the the net here, and it does talk about yeah, you know, a lot of us read it when we were seventeen or eighteen, and we were feeling misunderstood. Uh, we we'd pick up this book, and. I saw there not only, and I've seen you make this point on either your video or, or some of the yeah. media with PJ, that you know that you were idealistic when you were 17 or 18. Isn't it sad that people associate this book with only teenagers and that they assume that you're going to abandon your ideals as you get older? That that's really pathetic. Well, and a lot of people do abandon their ideas when they get old, and but that's sad. The sad thing is that yes, a lot of people read the book when they're teenagers and and are, are very attracted to it, and and uh, you don't get passionate about it and so on, and then they give it up, and that's what's sad. They give up on their ideals. They give it up on their passion. They conform to what society expects of them. They conform to what everybody else is doing. They become part of the mass, uh, of the masses. And that to me is what said, yes, she attracts teenagers because that's the period in which we're opening our eyes. We're, we're actually starting to use our own mind. We're, we're, we're observing. We're looking for truth and we're looking for what's real. And we're idealistic. So she is very attractive to teenagers and when they abandon her, you know, it's not just sad for us as objectivists, it's sad for them as human beings. Yeah, and a part of this also, I saw it as an example of what Rand would have called argument from intimidation. The idea that, oh, that book is just for teenagers. So if you are actually in favor of the ideas in the book, you are an immature person and then not really addressing the argument, you know, the, the ideas that themselves. But that's that's typical. Nobody ever addresses any 
of Ayn Rand's arguments. I mean, that is one of the shocking things about all the stuff you read about Ayn Rand, uh, whether left or right, all the critiques of her. They never actually address what she says. They never take a quote from her, you know, a serious quote from a nonfiction or from Gold Speech or something and actually say, well, this is what I disagree about it. No, they either distort her positions completely mm -hmm. or they make some ad hominem attack, some logical fallacy, and they go off from there. They, they don't. Nobody in the culture today engages in ideas. And, you know, I do a lot of debates. Um, I did four debates, I think, in the last two weeks. <laughs> And it, it, it's pretty amazing that there's, to some extent, there's nobody to debate with. There's nothing on the other side. The other side is primarily, you know, who knows? There are no principles. We just need to get together and figure this stuff out, right? There's no ideas. There's no principles. There's no philosophy on the, I mean, there's an implicit philosophy, but there's nothing explicit. And you find you're debating with, I don't know, jello. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, there's nothing real there. And, and you see that in how they attack Ayn Rand. They can't say anything substantive. So they dismiss her. Um, and, and this is true of, of the kind of stuff Ryan has said about Ayn Rand when he's tried to distance himself. He hasn't actually said anything real about what she stands for and what he disagrees with. Right. I mean, he just talks about, you know, our epistemology is different because, of course, he believes in, in faith. And that's, that's, uh, that's more his view. To me, on the left, the most sophisticated argument, the one that's a little bit hard to address, is the Rawlsian egalitarian view. And it's the idea that um, we have to come at everything from the veil of ignorance, behind the veil of ignorance, and you didn't deserve your attributes that you were born with, and those types of things. That's what's really behind the Elizabeth Warren, the you didn't build that. But Bill even, Gates, even uh, Warren a, Buffett, all of them are influenced by this. Yeah, and even you know Obama, as intellectual as he is, doesn't articulate even that sophisticated argument. So that's interesting. Neither does Elizabeth Warren do it very well. It's just, you know, the government provided the roads and you use them and so therefore you owe this debt back to society. But this this uh this idea of you didn't deserve your attributes, I've discussed it on my show before. We'll probably do it again. Yeah, but that's because you're you, you you've got a uh you've got a degree in philosophy so you think that Wallace's argument is sophisticated. Well, I mean, to me, but it's I, I, like, I'm saying it's, it's, me it's the like best argument they representing have. Representing the common man, <laughs> which I am, um, it's silly. Well, nobody. The, no, this is why they don't articulate it. Right. They don't articulate because nobody in the real world would take it seriously. Well, I mean, the the answer, of course, of this, and and Rand did such a good job yeah. of answering yes, it, did. which is that it is not a moral issue that you are born with certain characteristics and somebody else isn't born with those characteristics. That was not done by anybody. There's no injustice to be mm -hmm. rectified. And, I mean, that's really the And it's answer. part of reality. It is yeah. the reality. You are what you are. And to deny that, to reject that, is a denial of reality. It's, it's, and that's what's immoral. Right, right. So they take something that is just a mere fact of reality and make it into a moral injustice that yeah. has to be rectified. And it's just ridiculous. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe they don't articulate it because they think people would go ahead and uh, and dismiss it. In terms of Obama himself, uh, you know, discussing Rand's ideas here, he says uh, that Rand is in favor of, quote, a world in which we're only thinking about ourselves and not thinking about anybody else, end quote, which is just false. Yeah, uh, of course, all Randy and heroes think about other people as well, so that's wrong. No, but then he goes on to say, a world in which 
we're considering the entire project of developing ourselves as more important than our relationships to other people and making sure that everybody else has opportunity, end quote. Now, that actually sounds pretty right to me. Yeah, so that's he's articulating kind of an egoist position versus an altruist or an individualist position versus a collectivist, but he, but, he, but he conditions it on the first sentence. So therefore, thinking about yourself, your own project means ignoring everybody else, which is, of course, absurd. Uh, the, your whole project involves other people. We, you know, we, we have love relationships, we have friendship, and then we're traders. We're traders in the marketplace, we're traders in spiritual values. It, it, much of what we do in life involves other people most of what we do in life involves other people but it's the the perspective is it's your life and and those relationships are there from your perspective to make your life better otherwise you don't engage with them yeah so you you regard your project as more important than the relationship but it doesn't mean that you have no regard at all for the relationships with other people and all that obama does in this uh, little rolling stone excerpt here to address that is he says, that's a pretty narrow vision. That's no answer. That's exactly what you were saying, that they don't actually address the argument at all. He just says it's narrow. Well, partially they don't address it because they don't understand it. And, they, they, again, they set up a straw man. And it, if they have to address it, then they'd have to deal with the fact that the, the, it, it really is a straw man. Now, there is another paragraph that you don't have uh, where he continues to talk about this, uh, which which uh, which he goes back to. This idea that we communally build things and we, you know, everything's done together and so on. And but it's it's typical collectivism, uh, and it's uh, it, it again it can only he can only make that work by setting up the straw man of not caring about anybody and wanting to live in a desert island and and not wanting to use the roads and and so on, which is nonsense. No, I mean, and definitely he doesn't have this idea of trade or teamwork which John Allison has always done a good job of talking well, of about. He said, yeah, we do a lot of things collectively, in, in not not in the true collectivist, collectivist sense, but we do a lot of things together, and we do it as teams, teams who voluntarily agree, all the people in the team voluntarily agree that a certain goal is desirable and that we're going to work together in order to obtain that. But that doesn't mean that you have given up your individualism, your integrity, and things like this, which is what Obama thinks that we all need to do, is uh, give up all of our ideas, anything that's a sacred cow for us, for his collective vision. Absolutely. I mean, teamwork is a selfish activity. Yeah. If if, the, if it's a good team and, if, and the goal that the team is set up to, to work towards is, is the right goal. Another thing I liked about Don's answer to this is the uh, the little bit of history that he gives us about the fact that in America, before the entitlement state took over, it wasn't that you were on your own completely. I mean, in one sense, you're definitely on yeah. your own because ultimately your life is your responsibility and nobody else has a moral obligation to get you out of your tough spots and things like this. There's no moral obligation. But in America, before we had the so-called safety net, there were people who voluntarily joined mutual insurance societies and things like this in order to go ahead and, and insure themselves against the rough times. Yeah, but even more important than that, we were all free to find jobs, create jobs, yeah. and, and, and pursue our own happiness. And, and, and without government intervening, without government taking our stuff away from us, and without government regulation and, and redistribution. So there was... There was just a free society in which individuals dealt with one another as traders, 
and it was, uh, you know, and he, he portrays that somehow as this nasty, mean, awful period. But it is the period that created this country. It's the period that took us from a backward colony in 1776 to the strongest industrial country in the world by the, by the, by the you know, the early, 19th century, uh, the early 20th century. And it created the middle class. All the things that he supposedly likes, you know, come from that period. Without capitalism, none of that uh, none of that is possible. But yeah, I think one of the horrible things that he does is he takes, he, he tries to portray Americanism, you know, the idea of what it is to be an American and what, what ideas are behind America. And he tries to couch them in his collectivistic terms and rejects the idea that this is a country built in individualism. And that is historically wrong and a, and a huge injustice to the founders of this country and to, to the people who built this country in the 19th century, 20th century, uh, and who, who did it because this was a country that was built on the principle of individualism. And that's that's kind of the Forbes article is trying to show. Where Ayn Rand is the true heir of the founding fathers. Yeah. Ayn Rand is the true American. Obama is, and I think he would view this in a moment of honesty, would view this as a, as a point of pride. Obama is a European. Obama is is a continental, uh, you know, he's influenced by European philosophy, by European ideas. He wants America to be European. Uh, and I, I, I think he would agree with that. But that's what he really is. Of course, he can't win an election arguing that America should become Europe. But that's, at the end of the day, what he's all about. Well, he can if you got the UN people supervising at the polls and blah, you know, all yeah. of Europe wants him to be reelected. Now, there's a lot of uh, worry out there about... If this election is going to be rigged in some way, votes count in Spain, all stuff. But who knows? Whatever. We will. We will find out. That's no. I, I doubt. I doubt that they're sophisticated enough, and that the system is broken enough for Obama to literally steal this election. Uh, I still think that the system is basically as basically sound. Now, I think they. They. I mean, I've seen evidence to suggest that smaller elections are stolen all the time. That there's a lot of fraud, but it's typically at the local level. It's not at the national level. Well, we definitely hope, hope that you're right. I always like parsing Obama, and in this paragraph that I did get from Bosch, I guess yeah. I missed a paragraph. Yeah. Um, it, Obama says, in terms of the vision, Rand's vision, he says, it's not one that, comma, I think, comma, describes what's best in America. So he realizes that there's this other view, oh, but he's yeah. saying, I have this view. And I think he really has taken a gamble, and I think lost, on the idea that Americans were ripe for extreme altruism, egalitarianism, let's go and push through into the, you know, total state. And when people, you know, were listening to his, his speeches, I mean, that's what he has really been pushing. I think he's he's failing. And when people, you know, watched the first debate, him against Mitt Romney, I think that they were actually presented for the first time with, you know, not <laughs> Certainly not anything close to, to Rand's ideal on the Mitt Romney side, but the typical pragmatist conservative who likes free markets on the one hand versus Obama on the other, who is really pushing the altruism and the egalitarianism as far as he thinks he can take it with the American people. I think well, I think Americans are rejecting it. Um, I think they're rejecting it, but you know I think you have a more positive view of Romney than I do. Maybe you know in the, in the debates I found Romney the debates I saw I didn't see them all. I found Romney to be just a, a moderate Obama, at least that's and he's run, running to the center like there's no tomorrow and he's, he's everything. So uh, I'm going to be tough on China. No, I'll be tough on China. Or, 
you know, I, I, I want to bail out the auto industry. I would have bailed out them better. Or, you know, or I want to reform Medicare and Medicaid. Oh, I do too, but I just want to do it better. I mean, I found much of the debates to be me too, um, no fundamental principle differences, partially because Obama is trying to hide his collectivism because he can't get elected on a, on a pure collectivistic anti-American platform, and partially because Mitt Romney is trying to go for the independence and the center, which he believes is somehow, uh, you know, leftist to begin with. But both candidates are significantly left of where I would like to see the center of the United States be. Oh, definitely. I mean, you Romney could have run as a Democrat easily as yes. well. Yes. There's there's no question there, but he's he's not as, as destructive as Obama. But that's my opinion, and Yaron's not allowed to have real opinions about who you should vote no. for or anything like that because he's the executive director of the Iron Institute. So I could just say whatever I want, and Yaron has to sit here and be quiet and not <laughs> object because he's not allowed to. Uh, so if I say yes, you should definitely vote for Mitt Romney, Yaron just has to shut up and 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 not say anything. That's great. Okay, so. In the debate that you missed, by the way, Romney was no less disappointing. In fact, I think in the foreign policy debate, he was more disappointing because he was playing it a little safe. He pretty much had the first two debates in the bag, according to the popular sentiment. And so I don't. I think he just wanted to yeah, get but, by in the third debate. But what do you think Romney's foreign policy is? I mean, well, I, I mean, I'll tell you. This, yeah. is, this is it. This is what yeah. I got. Okay. Um, he definitely came across as more pro-American than Obama, sure. even though Obama was trying to be on his best behavior sure. during. And people in the chat room, you tell me if I if I'm wrong in this summation of of the debate because I did watch it. Um, you know, Obama was on his best behavior, but Obama, uh, still Romney comes across as more mm -hmm. pro-American. The other thing that Romney did is he stuffed his mind and used effectively tons of concrete knowledge about the various threats around the world. So, for instance, he can tell you who the prominent different groups are in the that are influential in Pakistan or whatever. So he has that concrete knowledge. Obama's idea of a concrete is to tell you some sob story, some heartstring-pulling story from somebody that he met while he was on the campaign trail. Romney's got those too, but he's got real knowledge to back it up, so he had that. But he had two very bad ideas that came across in that foreign policy debate. One was that America's duty is to make the planet peaceful. He said that explicitly, a peaceful planet. And then the other is that it's our job somehow to figure out how Muslims can reconcile their religion with a peaceful coexistence with everybody else in the world. In other words, we're supposed to help them reform Islam. So he's a neoconservative. He's, yeah. I mean, or, or more accurately, look, Romney is a, is a nothing. He's, he's an empty suit. He's an empty suit on all topics. He has no opinions. Um, he, he just he just absorbs stuff from whoever's got his ear. And the neocons are still incredibly influential within the Republican Party, within the, you know, the right, and, and particularly in foreign policy. They dominate that discussion. And so Romney is advocating for Bush's old strategy. That is, we need to be the policeman of the world. We need to go on policing and making sure that, uh, you know, everybody's behaving themselves. And if Americans have to die for that, then all the better. Then we're sacrificing for the peace of the world. That would make it good. That would really make us good guys. And then on top of that, you know, uh, we need to be the educators of the world because we need to bring them democracy. And we need to be, bring them enlightenment and we need to bring them, you know, the good life. And for that, we have to educate the Muslims of the world. And why stop at the Muslims? You know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there who could help, who we could help with. So, I, I yeah, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a traditional neocon in terms of the positions he's taking. Because those, I mean, it, it, in a sense, it's not his fault. 
those are the only positions that anybody articulates out there. So you, you basically got two forms of internationalism today in foreign policy. You've got uh, neoconservatives who are Republican internationalists and uh, leftist internationalists, you know, Woodrow Wilson type internationalists. Uh, they still want America to be the policeman of the world. They just want it to be the policeman of the world behind the UN, right? The UN would really run things, but we would support the UN. So at the end of the day, both Obama and Romney would like to go into Syria and, and, and pacify things in Syria. Romney, you know, might want to do it with just a little bit of UN support, and Obama would want to do it with, you know, the French and the and the Germans leading the way and us supporting them from the back, you know, so he wants other people to lead. But they're both essentially the same. They both want to do basically the same thing, except that Obama in a way that no president in American history uh, hates America and well, hates hates what America stands for. And uh, I, I think the best line that uh, Mitch Romney had was about Obama's uh, apology tour. And of course, Obama denied it. But Mitch should have followed up on that. That should have been, he should have quoted from from Obama's uh, Cairo speech. He should have quoted right. from his other speeches. He should have had those quotes memorized instead of all those stupid facts. He should have had those quotes memorized and forced the American people to see that, look, Obama did apologize. His whole administration is about America apologizing for its sins. Um, and I know some of you on the, uh, it looks like on the uh, talk thing, actually believe America is sinful. So, um, maybe you agree with Obama. You know, that was apparent in our country's handling of Benghazi because the first thing that happened is our consulate or whatever gave a tweet out that apologized for this video as the, you know, why we're getting Well, but it's much worse attacked. than that because why were we in Benghazi? Why do we even have a consulate or, right. or embassy in Benghazi? Why did we bomb Libya? What, what was our interest in bombing Libya and getting rid of, of Gaddafi? Why not? Why Why did we even butt into that conflict? Why didn't we just let them fight it out? Why are we taking sides in a stupid conflict which has no relevance to the United States' interests where, where two groups of really, really bad people are killing each other? Yay! Go for it. Continue to do it. We shouldn't be bringing peace to the world where peace does not belong. And that's my view of Syria, which is, I think, pretty radical. I don't think anybody says this on air. My view of Syria is that we wish purposefully, and we should actually declare this, not intervene, so that they continue to fight because the best thing for America and for Israel in the Middle East is instability. Is the bad guys fighting among themselves because stability either way is bad for us. If, if uh, Assad wins, he'll be more emboldened. He'll tighten his ties with Iran. He'll tighten his ties with Hezbollah. And that'll be a disaster for both Israel and the, and the United States. They'll be more aggressive. They, they'll, tight, you know, they'll, they'll buy more weapons from the Russians. They'll do more stuff. If he loses and the Muslim Brotherhood take over Syria, because that's what will happen if he loses, then they will tighten their relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood all over the world. They will still work with the Hezbollah. They'll tighten their relationship with Hamas. And that'll be a disaster because the next country, by the way, to fall after Syria will be Jordan. And then Israel will be surrounded by Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it, all these countries become bases for uh, terrorist training against the United States. So long term, until the Middle East is capable of a true liberal in the old sense, you know, pro-Western uh, movement, or until the United States develops the guts to actually deal with the threat, the best thing possible for us is, is for them to fight it out and for them to be so busy fighting with each other that they have no time 
an energy to come after us or come after Israel. That you know, it, it's this is this is ideal. Uh, you couldn't think of uh, you know, this is like the Nazis and the communists fighting against exactly. each other. Exactly. And as Ayn Rand said in World War Two, the best thing we should have done in World War Two is let them fight it out instead of helping the Soviets uh, against Hitler. Let Hitler and the Soviets slaughter each other until they're so weakened that they cease being a threat to their own people or to anybody else. Right, right. Now, we do have a call, so we're going to go ahead and take this caller. There was another caller online. If you do want to call back in, we will go ahead and take your call as well. Sorry for not getting to the call sooner. Hi, who's this? Hello? Can you hear me? Okay, so the caller that we had, we can't hear. Hello? Hello? Amy? Who's this? Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. I this is Debbie. I have my mic off. Sorry about that. Well, you know, it's been so many weeks since I had the show, you forgot the routine. So now we <laughs> now we got you. All right. So, um, yeah, thanks for, for taking my call and, and welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I just um I just wanted to say that I was very disappointed by Romney's comment well, by Romney's lack of comments on Libya. Um yeah. on the the it's this outrageous situation with Obama telling people to stand down who wanted desperately to go in and save the lives of Americans. And I know that some of that information didn't come out until after the debate, but but still by the time of that debate there was a lot known that I had been hoping Romney would have uh brought out um, because those debates, those are times when people who may not necessarily pay a lot of attention to politics are watching, and that's a good way to get information out, you know, to a wide audience that may not have otherwise listened to it. So, a big political analysis about this, and it was that he would choose deliberately not to mention it, and in a way that would create speculation as to why mention it and that would encourage the media to actually cover the story a lot more that was the one thing that i heard but your own is gesturing as if no that's a bunch no. of let's hear what he has i don't think that's true i mean i he didn't mention it because he's weak i mean uh, it, it takes strength and it takes guts to actually confront people on these kind of issues but look with all with all due respect i guess to this whole issue of, of benghazi and everything there's no, you know, there's nothing unusual about this. Uh, the rules of engagement that Americans have been fighting and, and Americans have been engaged in, in in Afghanistan and in Iraq and elsewhere around the world are suicidal. We send our troops into wars and in, intentionally, intentionally with the arms tied behind their backs and and uh, and and we, we've crippled their knees. You know, we've 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 knocked out their knees. We and this is, and I, you know, I, I get angry about this because because this is sending American kids to battle, uh, to die. And this is the Bush administration. I mean, nobody called him on it, but but it was a travesty. Five thousand Americans died in New York. They shouldn't have had more than a couple of dozen casualties over there. Uh, this is all about the rules of engagement. This is all about wars that are ridiculous. And yeah, Obama's just continuing the long tradition of not really caring about the lives of Americans. Caring about the lives of our enemies more than he, more than they do about the lives uh, uh, of of Americans, and yeah, let's hammer let's hammer away at this if you want to get you know Obama out, but let's remember historically that this is, you know, this is the pattern of American foreign policy for the last really since Vietnam. We do not fight wars. We 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 uh, and we send our troops in 
to die for other people and we value the lives of other people much more than we do our own. I mean, they had been lauded in the crosshairs uh, weeks after 9-11 and they did not kill him. They did not kill him because they were afraid of, of civilian casualties. That's been lauded. Uh, so, uh, and they, and we didn't put troops on the ground in Afghanistan in the early days in order to catch him and to get the Taliban and, and to destroy this and to end the war quickly because we were afraid. So if we're going to start criticizing people's uh, foreign policy, as much as I hate Obama, there's a, there's a bit of me that hates Bush even more. And, and, uh, and, and that, because, because, you know, Bush had this incredible opportunity to change American foreign policy. And he blew it, but he didn't just blow it. He, he sacrificed the lives of so many American young people as a consequence of it. Uh, so um, anyway, that's that's what I had to say about Benghazi. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of our, uh, you know, the administration, Obama administration and Bush, their willingness to send young men off to die. The, and they, they don't the, care about American lives. They, this is yeah. what this embassy situation shows. They don't care about American lives. But this is true of all of these politicians. And, and the worst of all of them is the State Department and, and, our, and, and many of our civil servants. Uh, and they just, they, you know, they just don't care. The fact is that they, they're playing grand scale polit- politics uh, with the lives of, of Americans. And they, their sworn duty is to protect the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness of Americans, the, the life of Americans. That's the one thing government should do, and it's the one thing that in foreign policy they don't do, and they, and they don't they don't seem to even care about. And they well, and they self righteously don't do it because they say basically right. that you've signed on to sacrifice yourself, and that is just not true. It is definitely possible to be rationally self interested and sign on to be in the military when there is a risk of death. But you're not supposed to have commanders or commanders in chief who send you off where it's relatively certain that you're going to die. And and uh, for example, recently in Afghanistan, so many of our young men and potentially women—I don't know how many uh, female casualties—their lives have been lost because Obama's trying to scale down the forces to meet his 2014 deadline or whatever it is to get out of Afghanistan, and we're supposedly training the Afghanis to defend themselves. And in the process, we are bunking with them. We are sitting, you know, having our men sit there in situations where they are not armed and the Afghanis are armed. And as soon as the Afghani trainee is given his bright, shiny new gun or, or you know, rifle, he trains it on Americans and kills them. And th- there have been well over 100 lives lost that way now because of Obama's policy. No, absolutely. I mean, look, it, it, the moral crime that these last two presidents have committed towards our troops in, in places like Afghanistan is just horrific. And the, the problem is that they place the lives of Afghans and the prosperity of Afghanistan and and the building them sewer systems and electricity and all that, they place that as a greater value than the lives of Americans. And and what is the and, and they don't have look, we're busy building sewer systems in Afghanistan. Who has time to protect our ambassador in, in Libya? Now again, a proper foreign policy would not have an embassy in Libya. A proper foreign policy would not have an embassy today in Egypt. We would not have an embassy in a country that, whose rulers are dedicated to the uh, the ideas that uh, are set to destroy the United States. Uh, and we should have learned this. We should have learned this in 1979, when uh, in, in November 4th of 1979, when our uh, when our embassy was taken by the Iranians. By the way, um, can I make a, a 
a movie pitch? Go right ahead. Uh, if you can tolerate the first three minutes of Argos, which the three minutes are horrible, but it's just a narration which describes the history of Iran, which is just terrible leftist propaganda. The movie Argos is actually very good, and it's very enjoyable. It's suspenseful. It's pro-American. It shows the Islamist regime of Iran for what they really are. And uh, it, it shows Americans, uh, some Americans, as heroic, uh, and uh, and it's a lot, and it's fun because it's it's really suspenseful and and it's it's a it's a it's a good ending. I'm not giving too much away. I think everybody knows it's a happy ending, but uh, it, it's worth it's worth going to see with Ben Affleck. And um, you know, again, the first three minutes when they do the narration of the history of Iran is awful, but uh, once you get over that, uh, it really is a fine movie. Good to hear. Now, Juju Fruit in the chat room says, does Jerome hate Bush more for going into Iraq and taking down Saddam? Does Jerome agree? I think she is implying yeah. that, no. uh, that that he's good for doing that, but the Iraq was totally the wrong war. It was the wrong war, but you know, I have no problem with taking down Saddam. You can take yeah. down Saddam. You cannot take down Saddam. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, it, 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 Ayn Rand pointed out that countries that have dictatorships don't have sovereignty, so it's your choice. The question is your interest. And the question is this, was it an American self-interest to take down Saddam? And, and it, now it might have been, but was it an American interest to take down Saddam when it costs 5,000 American lives? My answer is no. Saddam was not a threat to the United States. 5,000 Americans did not have to die in order to take him down. If you wanted to take him down, there were ways to take him down without having to uh, to, to, to have so many Americans give up their lives. And, and, and you know, in this case, it was a sacrifice because they didn't get anything in return. To, to, to really sacrifice their lives, which is which is a, a great tragedy. Uh, the real war, you know, as we pointed out right after 9-11, should have been with Iran and with Saudi Arabia. Those are the enemies funding terrorism. Those are the, those are the people endorsing uh, Islamic totalitarianism, the ideology of it. Uh, Iran didn't have anything to do with it. It was a secular dictator who was a bad guy, but he wasn't attacking you said it, the Iraq States. didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, yeah Saddam Hussein. You, you said Iran. Okay. So Iraq yeah. had nothing to do with it. So, yeah, yeah. so it was the wrong war, and it was executed so poorly that it would be it would have been better if we hadn't done it at all. Today, Iraq is a bigger threat to the United States than it was under Saddam Hussein because today it is under the influence of Iran. It is a basically a Shia bus, uh, uh, you know, a base for the Iranians, and, and it'll only get worse. Uh, it'll get worse in the de- in the uh, years to come. It'll become a greater and greater enemy of the U.S., particularly after we leave. And and the same thing, by the way, of Afghanistan. I mean, you know, once we leave, they'll revert back to the same position, and they they're, will. They're, before, doing, which it, is they're fine. doing it now. <laughs> we, we should just we should not be in Afghanistan. We, we should leave and say, you know, if you don't behave yourself, we'll bomb. You know, you can't bomb them into the dark ages because they're already there, but, you know, we'll take you out. So the point is that American military should be focused on self-defense only. They should, when somebody attacks us, we should find out who it is. We should find out the countries responsible for it, and we should, you know, crush them and then come home. It is not our job to bring them democracy. It is not our job to, to bring them a good life. It is not our job to occupy them. It is our job to protect the lives and property of Americans. That is it. That's the only job of the American government. And it should do so by any means necessary in order to minimize the casualties and the cost to America. Right. And certainly not this obligation to make the planet peaceful or to help 
Muslims find their reformed version of Islam, which is what uh, Romney talked about. Now, what you said about Iran is a great transition to my next topic, but I want to give Debbie a chance to, to follow up here. So, Hello? Oh, sorry, I uh, I lost my sound there for a minute. Yeah, just I I really uh, I agree. It's, it's really disappointing, or no, worse than that, outrageous. The way that our foreign policy has been over a lot of years, and uh, and it's just it. I guess I had hoped that maybe Romney would have said something about, um, like you pointed out, the the Afghani trainees that are murdering Americans, uh, and and that's just something that is being accepted and there were a lot of opportunities there but but I did want to point out that Romney did say one thing that I thought was pretty good um, for, during that foreign policy debate which was when Obama had when the topic of Obama's apology tour came up and and uh, and Romney did have a pretty good line uh, Obama said no this is just a whopper and, and Romney came back and quoted back some of the things that Obama had said. And one of those things was that we dictate to other countries and we're some kind of an international bully. And Romney said, we do not dictate to other countries. We free them from dictators. And uh, and I did kind of like that line. No, not, not a bad line, definitely. I mean, in terms of debate skills, Romney was doing fine. It's just the content that, that gets to me. So, uh, Debbie, if you will indulge me now, I want to show Yorona a video he's never seen before and have him react on the spot. Are you up for that? As, as a, yeah. As a radio stunt? Okay. I'm going to put the link in the chat room for this uh, video here. Let me see if I can do this and coordinate all these windows on my handy computer. Okay. Okay. I put the link in the chat room to the video that I'm going to have uh, Yorona watch here. Let me get the window up for it. Oh, gosh, there's the other window. Okay. Yaron's never seen this before. Maybe you'll hear it. Maybe you won't. We're going to rewind it to the beginning and let him watch. This is the latest Gary Johnson ad called Cast a Vote for Peace. Maybe you've heard of it. Is there supposed to be something going on? You hear, you hear little kids in the background. Okay. It says, right now, little kids in Iran are about to die. Did you hear him? I'm the only candidate who does not want to bomb you on. Yes. He says, vote libertarian with me for one uh. election. Live free. He says, I'm the only candidate who does not want to bomb Iran. Now, I mean, that's just so silly in the first place. It's like, you know, people who are pro-choice want to have abortions. Um, but... Other than that, what's your well, reaction? Well, I mean, this is typical. I, you know, I'm not surprised at all. He, he he's a he's a libertarian candidate. He has to adapt himself to the uh, policy of the libertarian party. The libertarian party. If you think Obama's anti-American in his in his foreign policy, you ain't seen nothing yet until you meet the libertarian party. The libertarian party after 9/11 wanted America to apologize to the world. The Libertarian Party after 9-11 wanted us to bring everybody home to say we're sorry and, and ask forgiveness from, from, from the Muslim world. They blamed it completely on America. So, yes, you know, if he, if he wants to get a Libertarian vote, he is going to have to play the Libertarian, at least the Libertarian Party, line on this, which is about as pacifist, anti-American, horrific as, as you can get. And, and if people want to know 
why I don't support anything to do with the Libertarian Party. Uh, this is why we don't have anything to do with them for exactly this reason. They, they, they represent some of the worst ideas, um, the worst ideas possible about America, particularly in terms of uh, in terms of foreign policy. I, I believe that Gary Johnson, before he ran for president, had a better better views on foreign policy. He, he was he was much more rational. But again, he is trying to tow the Libertarian Party line, and he's also trying to capitalize on the Ron Paul votes, the the anti-American um, uh, foreign policy views of Ron Paul, which are no different than, than what you just heard from Gary Johnson. Look, nobody, you know, this idea, I, I, everybody wants to bomb Iran, completely out of context, not, not presenting any view. Okay, so what do we do with Iran? Do we just let them get nuclear weapons? Do, do, they, have a, do they have an ideology? Do we care about an ideology? Are they, what is their position in the world? What is our position in the world? It's just a completely random, stupid thing to say, I'm a pacifist, vote for me. You know, and and uh, you know, this is this is the tragedy of American politics. The tragedy of American politics is that we've got two candidates who who uh, who uh, who are going to one of whom is going to win, who are both horrible and terrible and middle of the road. You know, Obama's maybe not middle of the road. Maybe he's more radical left than we'd like, but present themselves as middle of the road. They have nothing interesting to say, nothing useful to say in foreign policy or domestic policy. They're bland. And then there's nobody else. There really is nobody else. There is no alternative to those two. It would be wonderful if we had a real third party. If we had a third party that actually represented, and it didn't have to be an objectivist third party, just a third party that was more rational, that was generally pro-free markets, that was generally secular in its positions, and it generally had, you know, a pro-American foreign policy. It wouldn't have to be. I don't expect anybody to agree with me, right? If they, if you agreed with me, you would lose in a landslide in politics. But just a reasonable party, right? It would be nice to have a reasonable party out there. And, and unfortunately, what we've got today are two parties that are both horrible and then this third, you know, abomination. Now, what about this idea? And, you know, and, and Gary Johnson has, uh, for example, in an ad explicitly appealed to the Ron Paul followers. He says that if you vote with me as a libertarian, you're going to help carry Ron Paul's revolution into the future. So he explicitly appeals to them. But he says, be libertarian with me for one election. And in another ad, I've seen him say that you'll, you'll be sending a message by voting for Gary Johnson. Do you think there's any message that people send? Well, I mean, he's going to get so, such a small percentage of the vote that there's no message going to be sent. And look, I don't want to comment on, yeah. on who you should vote for, but... What message? I mean, yes. If if like if like when what's his name Ross Perot ran and he got 19 percent of the vote, that sends a message. Now, did it help? That any of the issues that Ross Perot brought up were they dealt with? Not really. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that's why I believe I believe there is a viable, there is a possibility to have a viable third candidate out there who who where you can send a message, but not the Libertarian Party. Never the Libertarian Party. So that that leads into the the last topic I have, and, and we've only got a little bit of time here. But uh, the the Libertarianism podcast that you did with Leonard Peikoff, I think he just put it up on his website this week. So if people go to Peikoff dot com, that's P E I K O F F dot com, you'll be able to see this latest podcast where Yaron and uh, mostly Leonard discuss the concept of Libertarianism and why Libertarianism actually is a, a bad term to coin. Uh, 
there's there's two things why libertarianism is bad in that it is focused on this uh, concept of liberty. Liberty is a value, and you try to put a whole ism, a whole ideology around it out of context value. So that was Leonard's basic critique. But then there was also the issue of how to deal with organizations whose ideas you don't share, including libertarian organizations, among others. Um, one question I had then was, given that Gary Johnson is basically appealing to people to vote for him as a way to send a message about libertarianism as such, if you vote for him, are you doing some sort of bad sanction of libertarianism? Absolutely. And and, and look, um I think I think various people call themselves libertarian and various organizations call themselves libertarian, but they're not necessarily part of this hardcore libertarian movement, which I think was much stronger in the 70s and 80s, and which represents nihilism and represents uh, anarchism and anti-Americanism, this horrible foreign policy. But the, the, the libertarian political party is still a remnant of that. It is still part of that hardcore anti-American, anti-what America really stands for, anti-capitalism, anti-freedom, libertarian perspective. So of all the libertarian entities out there, among the ones that I find most offensive is is the Libertarian Party. I I, I think it's not only a waste of time, I think it's worse than that. It is is a sanction of the worst elements within the libertarian, uh, you know, within libertarianism. And uh, and should be avoided. I I said at the time, if I you know that while I like Gary Johnson, it, it is uh, you know I liked Gary Johnson uh, before he but once he became a, a, a libertarian a, a, candidate, a, a, yeah. the libertarian candidate, he he wasn't even on the radar screen for me. Yeah, and and for me again, integrating what you and Leonard talked about with respect to yes, you can associate with these other groups on particular concrete issues. So long as, but it depends on what groups. You cannot associate, right. in my view, with a group like the Libertarian Party. It, there is no concrete issue that would justify it. They are so off the charts wrong. They're so off the charts bad that to such again, I, I I don't lump all libert all people who call themselves libertarian, all group that calls themselves libertarian. I don't lump them all together. It's a fragmented movement. It's broken up into all, and there's some the hardcore. I call them Rothbardians. Uh, you know, I don't think one should have anything to do with them, the hardcore Rothbardians. But there are a lot of others who are not, and who you have to then assess whether you can work with them, under what conditions, under you know, for what purpose. Mm-hmm. I, I, the Libertarian Party is not one of those that I think you should be. We should work with on anything. Okay, so it's not just the issue of Johnson in his ad saying that by you voting for me, we are uh, promoting libertarianism. It it goes beyond that because of the organization itself. Yes, but I also agree that I don't think we should be promoting libertarianism. Objectivism is not libertarianism. Our political philosophy is not a libertarian political philosophy. It is a capitalist political philosophy. And libertarianism is still a term that is mixed, that is tainted by uh, you know, the, 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 again, the, the nihilism, the, the anarchism, the anti-Americanism that so much of it, its adherents still advocate for. So I think you need to be very careful. Uh, you need to be very careful on who you deal with and under what conditions. And I think it's sometimes appropriate, but not always appropriate. And you have to – and it's risky whenever objectivists with anybody cooperate with anybody. It's risky. 
So one has to be careful. Now, we actually have here in the chat room... Who's the intended audience for yeah, FMR? Yeah, who, who's the intended audience? The intended audience, audience for FMR are non-objectivists. Now, I hope objectivists... FMR, Free Market Revolution, free market his revolution. book, by the way. They're yeah. not... The, the intended audience is not objectivists. Now, I hope objectivists read it. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll learn something from it. I think it'll give you more ammunition uh, for for the for your own thinking and also for, for your ability to communicate with others on these issues. But FMR is written primarily for people... Who are um, who who have a sense that big government is a bad thing? That something wrong. There's something wrong uh, in uh, in the country with the country, and that we have to be and, and that something needs to change. And this is this is a book that explains what's wrong and how to fix it. And it does so by introducing them to Ayn Rand's uh, moral code of rational egoism. But it doesn't do it philosophically. You know, it's, it, we don't get into the meta ethics. We don't get into a lot of the deep issues. And it's also not a book about economics. So, you know, I've seen some people critiquing the book that we don't talk enough about the gold standard. Or we don't talk enough about central banking. The point is, is not to be a treaty here, treatise here on, on economics. The point is to take some of the key issues that people are facing in the political world today and show them how the how altruism shapes the debate and how rational self-interest provides a real alternative in terms of how they think about the issues. I think it is a great, great book for tea parties. It's a good book for, you know, uh, for, for, for libertarians who are, you know, who might not, you know, they're not fully committed uh, all out there anarchist libertarians, but libertarians are, you know, people who are interested in freedom, free markets, capitalism, but who, uh, you know, and, and maybe, don't know that much about objectivism. This might be in, a good intro for them. It's also a book that reads very, I think, well and, and quite easily. So it's not, it's not a difficult book for somebody to just pick up and read quickly. No, I, I agree. It reads very well, and I like the selection of essentials that Don and you made with respect to both ethics and. Uh, Economics. Now, there's something in the chat room you wanted to respond to here? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what people are equating what I said about libertarians to Democrats and Republicans. Uh, you know, It might I, be moving too fast in it, there to yeah, keep track of the conversation. Know. Yes, but um, look, I mean, uh, objectivists, uh, it's too early for us to have a, a political, a real political voice. We don't have a political voice in, in any of the political parties that exist out there. There's no way we can have it. Again, if, if you're an objectivist and you run as an objectivist, you're going to lose. We are radicals for capitalism, and, uh, and our primary way in which we will change the world is not political. We, we want to educate politicians. We want to educate people who, inf who influence politics. But our primary means of changing the world is educational. We need to American people about the ideas that uh, that freedom and individualism requires, and that's that's where we should be heading. So on that note, we're going to ask you to go ahead and go to your own blog, capitalism.einrand.org, to find out more about his book and everything else that he's doing, going back and forth across the country trying to help save it. Uh, you can also keep in touch with me by going to the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook, just don't let it go. And I'd like you to check out, if you can, I started an Indiegogo campaign to try to bring this show to a larger audience in 2013. You can read about it at my blog at don't let it go. 
com. It's at the bottom of the most recent post there. Uh, one little brag that I have for this week is that the Ayn Rand bot, which is the little Twitter account that tweets out quotations from Ayn Rand, it has reached this week over 10,000 followers on Twitter, which was my 2012 goal reached a couple months early. So hopefully that's helping. Excellent. And maybe maybe more followers in the light of Obama's comments. Who knows? Excellent. And since I'm traveling all over the country, if you want to see if I'm going to come uh, somewhere near you, you can check that out on the blog. Click on events, capitalism.ainrand.org. Click on events. I'm going to be in Carolina and South Carolina in about a week. Okay, thanks very much, Jerome. Everybody else, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good night.